The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Scripture is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. We're continuing our study in this epistle. Chapter 5 at verse 3, reading through verse 14, considering we're in the very practical application part of Ephesians, and we want to hear God's word and seek to apply it to our lives. Follow with me as I read. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Christians are children of light. Christians are sinners saved by grace who have been brought out of darkness into Christ's marvelous light. And verse 8 of our text states this reality in very stark and absolute terms. Paul says, at one time you were darkness. Notice he doesn't merely say you were in darkness. He says you were darkness. But now he says you are light in the Lord. And then comes the command, walk as children of light. As we have studied through Ephesians over the past weeks, we have repeatedly pointed out this key pattern, the imperative based on the indicative. And here it is again in verse 8. You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's the indicative. That's describing who we are now in Christ. We are light in the Lord, as much as sometimes it may not feel that way. And then, as we've seen, comes the command, thus, live that way. Walk as children of light. That's the imperative. That's the command. The indicative comes first. We are children of light, so live that way. So the imperative, based on the indicative, be who you are. This evening, we want to think about living differently from the world with the special focus of our text 
seeking to be sexually pure in a sexually immoral world. It's interesting how in this section where Paul is talking about being different from the world, he really zeroes in on the issue of sexual immorality. In his recently released book on holiness, Kevin DeYoung, a young pastor in Michigan, he devotes an entire chapter to the subject saints and sexual immorality. And he makes this observation there. He says, if we could transport Christians from almost any other century to any of today's Christian countries in the West, I believe that what would surprise them most, besides our phenomenal affluence, is how at home Christians are with sexual impurity. It doesn't shock us, he says. It doesn't upset us. It doesn't offend our consciences. In fact, unless it's really bad, sexual impurity seems normal, just a way of life. And I think he's right. It's so normalized in our society. DeYoung is saying it's very likely that most of us as believers, to some degree, are desensitized to the sexual immorality that is so pervasive in our society. And so you and I must fight. You and I must seek to live as children of light in the darkness. We must fight with God's strength to walk as children of light in a dark world. We must fight not only what is out there, but also what easily becomes in here, the inroads the world makes in our own hearts. We must examine our hearts and lives and be willing to say with the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We must ask, what does God say and how has God provided for our holiness and our purity as we live in this world where God has sovereignly placed us in our day and our time? How does God enable us through faith in Jesus Christ to walk to a different drumbeat and by God's grace to actually be salt and light in a corrupt society? I want us to see three main points in our time, and the first is this, God's call to be different, the call to sexual purity. Notice what we see in verses 3 and 4. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Doesn't that text aptly describe God's calling for us as Christians? Sexual immorality, the word porneia, fornication, is the old-fashioned King James word for it, means all kinds of sexual sin. Impurity or uncleanness probably describes sexual sin in its more degraded forms. It also probably brought to mind what was happening at Ephesus, where these believers lived. Ephesus was the center of worship for the goddess Diana, the fertility goddess History tells us that the worship of Diana was accompanied by all sorts of sexual sin. So Paul is saying, Christians, your calling by God is to be radically different from the society, the world around you. 
Don't let it even be named among you as is proper for saints. I like the way the NIV says there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Don't let it even be named among you. God's standard is complete purity of heart and life. That's calling of God for all of us. And this certainly speaks to our action, but it also goes to our words and even our thoughts. And that's why verse 4 talks about such things as the kind of jokes that you tell, the kind of things that you talk about or text about or uh, anything like obscenity. Maybe uh, you might not think these kind of things are that bad. I think that's a generational issue of our time, that many of the younger generation are just so used to this in the culture, in the media, in society, that they're desensitized to it. Maybe they don't even stop to think about it. But here we see the calling to be different. Maybe you don't think anything of watching TV shows where God's good gift of sexuality is trivialized or degraded. But God says it's not fitting. It's out of place. If you belong to Christ, it should not be part of your life. I remember when we had our dog, sometimes she liked to roll in things that didn't smell very good. But when she did, we weren't all that surprised that she did. And we washed her off and we said, well, she's the dog and that's what dogs tend to do. But what if a bride in her beautiful white bridal gown did something like that? Well, we would all say, oh, that's revolting. Why would she want to roll in mud or something worse? That's not fitting. Whoever heard of such a thing, that would be our reaction. You see, that's what Christians are. You, Christian, you are called by God to be like Christ. You are called to be the bride of Christ. You are called to be different. Our society has gotten to the point that it celebrates what the disobedient do in Secret. Just look, look at where it describes that. It, um, verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Our, our society celebrates these things. And so it's a difficult pathway for Christians to live and to walk in this. It's shameful even to mention it. Let me make two pointed applications on our first point here. Thinking about the calling of God on our lives, one application is the Bible forbids all sexual activity outside of marriage. It may seem obvious here in our text, but it's a very important point to make. That's what the words fornication and impurity are talking about, all sexual activity outside of the proper use in marriage. The Bible speaks about this over and over again. The Bible is very clear. Of course, the Bible talks about adultery as well, which is speaking about unfaithfulness within marriage, unfaithful to your marriage. But there should be no doubt in anyone's minds, there shouldn't be any confusion about this, God makes it very clear that sexual immorality is wrong. There was a recent interview with Tim Keller about this in which he says that he knows that among young people professing Christians in his church in Manhattan, there's more and more opposition to this idea, this biblical truth. Whenever he preaches on it, he says his church gets very quiet, and he knows that a lot of the young folks feel like he's meddling in areas that he shouldn't be. He says they 
think they believe the gospel, they're doing mercy ministry and deeds like that, they're seeking to be salt and light, but don't meddle in my sexuality. So this just shows you the tone, tenor of our society and where things are going. If you are a Christian, God calls you to purity of life. Whether you're married or single, whether you're young or old, whether it's a matter of your actions or your words or your thoughts, the standard is God calls you to seek to be pure. No matter what your friends may say, no matter who says it's okay, no matter how much the world may just laugh about it and mock about it, no matter how much you might try to rationalize it away, this is the command of God. He calls you to a radically different lifestyle. The second application of this first point, if you're following me here, is this. Don't be deceived by thinking that you are simply unaffected by the world. Yes, God is at work in our lives. He's sanctifying us. He's at work in us. But one of the ways that he helps us is to help us to realize how the world presses in upon us. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't think you're unaffected. In other words, fighting the world's darkness requires that you and I realize how easy it is for us to become used to darkness, how normal it seems to us. Let me give you an example of this. I read an article the other week about Super Bowl time by a a man by the name of Matthew Voss an elder in a PCA church who teaches sociology at Covenant College, a young dad with daughters ages 7 and 11, who's very wise, I think, in his assessment of the powerful normative influences of our society. A few weeks ago, he wrote this article about the Super Bowl, Now, I might be stepping on toes and everything, but I know the Eagles weren't in it this year and the Steelers weren't in it, so everybody's safe here. But his article, even the title of it is thought-provoking. The title is Prizes and Consumables, the Super Bowl as a Theology of Women. Go online and just read it. Search for it. And he basically is saying the way we consume iconic national events like the Super Bowl better depicts what we really believe about women than does anything else. And then he says this, for the invisibility of normality, there we find our idolatry. Interesting, isn't it? For the invisibility of normality, there we find our idolatry. In other words, normal becomes so invisible to us, but really it's all steeped in idolatry. It's a long article that he writes. But basically, he's saying, let me quote at one point. I have two daughters, 11 and 7 years old, and am ever aware that their understanding of their worth as young women is structured more by our televised sports, mass entertainment, and the plastic surgery billboards placed at eye level on the way to their Christian elementary school parenthesis, really, than by much of what we try to teach in church and Sunday school. So he's thinking about what are the influences? What is the message of the Super Bowl as a whole, as the Super Bowl, and where women fit into that, both in the game itself and all the supporting roles and in the ads that support it? He says, I contend that the way we consume iconic national events like the 
Super Bowl, and there are other things like this as well, of course, better depict what we really believe about women and their so-called roles than do our formal theological statements, denominational position papers, teaching about the spiritual disciplines, and admonition toward modesty and fidelity. It's really powerful what he has to say. He explains that the way women are portrayed in the televised sports manhood formula is as sexy props or prizes for men's successful sport performances or as consumption choices. I won't go into it in greater lengths. But in other words, he's saying that women are objectified. Women's agency or their part is not chiefly linked to their minds or to the wholeness of their persons, but is unmistakably connected to their bodies. So, This is just an example of one example of our society in which we live. And Voss is saying, don't think that you can watch the Super Bowl and somehow be immune to the very powerful worldly messages being poured out into our culture and society. And so he has some ideas at the end of the article. Maybe abstain from viewing it. Maybe watch some of the commercials with your kids and Really think about them. Think about the messages and talk about that with your kids. Of course, some commercials you shouldn't watch with your kids. None of us should watch. But the fact is, he says, that's just what Christians do, not only with the Super Bowl, but with hundreds and thousands of other similar cultural messages being given to us every day. And we get so used to these that we consider them normal. But that normalcy just goes to show how insidious the world's influence is on all of us. So, don't think you're unaffected by the world. Second main point, the heart of the battle is your heart. It's interesting that in the midst of this exhortation about sexual immorality and for purity of life and the Christian's calling to be different from the world, that there are pointers in the text about the fact that sexual sin is not merely about outward behavior. It involves our heart. It always comes back to our heart. The heart of the battle is the heart. One of the pointers is that little word, covetousness. Notice it appears in verse 3 and in verse 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. And then the same thing is referred to in verse Five. And that word often refers to greed for money, of course. We think of it that way, but it, it really much broader. It means strong, inordinate craving, an ability, an inability to be satisfied with what God gives within the bounds of his will. Covetousness wants to break out of the boundary of God's will for us, and it wants more. It may be a craving for money or something else, or it may be a craving for sex, as I think it's related to here. That's why it's used in conjunction with the word sexual immorality. In other words, covetousness is what drives the pursuit of sexual immorality, and that's a heart issue. Instead of really loving someone and wanting to build them up and serve them and bless them, covetousness is linked to sexual sin, wanting to use or possess them. The second evidence from our text is that word in verse 4, thanksgiving. In other words, 
in opposition to sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, and all these other things, let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an attitude of the heart. You can't just get rid of this kind of sin. You've got to fight fire with fire. You've got to replace it with a heart that goes out to God in thankfulness and worship. That involves contentment with God's provision for your life, for where you are right now. It's not something outward. It's something deeply, spiritually inward. Sexual sin springs from the heart, and instead of giving into it, fight it with thanksgiving. And the third pointer that points to the heart is in verse 5, and that's the reference to idolatry. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Paul is saying this is a matter of worship. You and I are always worshipers. Everyone is. Whether we are valuing money or approval, or prestige, or others liking our appearance, or material goods, whatever it might be, he says essentially it's a matter of worship. And so it can be idolatry. Giving into temptations mean that, means that at that moment you are worshiping something other than Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord. Let me back up and give you an overview of what the Bible says about this. Genesis tells us that God designed human sexuality. God created Adam and Eve. And sexual intimacy within marriage is God's good gift. And it's clear that the Bible teaches that it is intended as an expression of an already existing unity. That's what marriage is all about. The two become one. But the very nature of sexual immorality is that is gratification apart from the unity of marriage. So, sexual immorality bypasses genuine unity and intimacy. It tries to get around the God-ordained context of true commitment and true covenantal love. And marriage is based on that kind of love that knows it must die to self and give itself, but sexual immorality is the opposite. It's idolatrous. It's self-worship. It's living for self. It's using someone else. And so do you see what I mean when we think about the battle is a battle about our hearts? I like the way that one writer describes the contrast between the biblical view of sexuality and the world's view. He says that the world's view is like a hydraulic model of pressure that biological drives increase, and they have to be expressed. So it's just like a mechanical idea. But that's not, all, that, that's not at all what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says that the flesh, or the sinful nature, is insatiable. You can't satisfy it. It never gets enough. It never satisfies. It's never satisfied. That's why we see people in our society and throughout history this is the case, falling into deeper and deeper degradation. They're never satisfied. Sin is never satisfied. So it's about the heart. And Jeremiah's famous statement about the heart is still true. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The only cure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gives us a new heart 
and then he remakes us more and more so that it's worked out in our lives. The issue is our heart. It's a battle for our heart. And this leads me to my last main point, how to fight for sexual purity, how to seek to be different, especially in this area, in a society, in a world in which we live which is increasingly degraded and dark. Well, I've got six brief points here under this last one. The first is this. Overcoming sexual immorality is part of growing in Christ. It's part of growing in Christ. The Bible doesn't give three simple steps. It's not a matter of following certain rules or techniques. Yes, God's word is our law, but apart from Christ dwelling in you, you will have no power to keep the law. So it's related to growing in Christ. In other words, we need a new heart, as Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You need to come to Christ and submit your will to his will and bow before him and place all your hope and trust in him. And then he begins remaking us radically different from within so that we deep down know that we don't want to march to the drumbeat of the world, so that we war and fight against those influences which are so normal in the world in which we live but now we have a new heart in Christ. And there's a struggle. There's a warfare. And the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians and he's telling them to put off these things. We're in this great section of Ephesians. Put off and put on. Put off sexual immorality and impurity. Put on thanksgiving. It's part of God's sanctifying work in our hearts. Sometimes when people come to me struggling with an area like this, and they might almost be looking for some kind of technique or three easy answers or an easy solution to this that they can just apply to their lives and they won't struggle anymore. But the answer is linked with the whole issue of our walk with Christ, our communion with Christ, with Christ's Word dwelling in us and our daily being content in Christ and submitting our will to Him in the power of the Spirit and dying to sinful self and living to God. You see, you can't be lukewarm or half-hearted in our devotion to Christ and expect to overcome temptation with ease. It just doesn't work that way. That's not how God has ordained the Christian walk to be. And so the point comes, we need to pursue wholehearted devotion to Christ Sexual sin and growth against it, fighting it, is part of our growing in Christ. Secondly, back to the point I mentioned at the beginning, be who you are. That's a very strong point here. As Paul makes the contrast very dark and sharp, he says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That means that by faith, we are trusting Jesus Christ to work out in us what he has already accomplished in us, to work it out as we strive to trust and obey Christ. We are new creations in Christ. If you've come to trust in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come, but now you've got to live that out. In a very real way, this means that you are crying out to God on the basis of his word, and you are saying, Lord, I need your help. Here's temptation, but you are my strength. 
And as you walk by faith, you are more more and more conformed to the likeness of Christ. Yes, with lots of ups and downs. But the general direction is we are becoming, we we seek to be who we are in Christ. Third, fight sin's deceit with God's word. Why does Paul bring up the subject of God's wrath here in verse 6? Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He's writing to Christians. Why does he bring up the wrath of God? Because he's pointing to sin's ultimate end. He's pointing to the final conclusion of the way of sin. Every little sin ultimately has its direction in death, in the wrath of God if we do not put it to death by the power of the Spirit. And so, so he's showing the necessity of Christians to persevere. And yes, we believe that all those born of the Spirit will persevere by God's grace through many trials and tribulations, through many ups and downs. But he's showing us the ultimate end, and he's saying, don't be deceived. That's not how the messages of our culture come to us. They come to us as looking okay. They come as looking as normal, but they're deceptive. They're lies. Don't be deceived. Don't think that sexual immorality is just no big deal. You know, there were in the early church those who eventually became known as Gnostics, who taught that you could sin with your body and it wouldn't affect your soul. It was a lie. And Paul's saying, don't believe those kind of lies. The only way to fight the lies of the world is to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of the God, and slay every deceitful thought of sin with the word of God. Fourth, put off specific sins in your life. Paul makes clear commands here. Don't let there be foolishness, foolish talk, crude joking, very specific things. I'm sure that if he were alive today, Paul would say, don't let there be sexting, if you even know what that is. Don't let there be immorality on your Facebook page, all kinds of things like that. You can never fight sin generally. You always have to fight sin specifically. Words, actions, thoughts, desires. Putting off sin means that with God's help, you renounce all inroads to sin in your life. And you keep doing that. You keep fighting it. Specifically, you repent of these things. You trust in Christ. You seek to obey God. I don't go out in my backyard when the weeds are all growing in the summertime, in late summertime, in August. I don't go out in my garden and just stand there and oppose weeds in general and hope that they're gone, just kind of cross my arms and think, I'm against all weeds in my yard. I wish that would work. No, I have to be opposed to weeds specifically and go track them down and pull them out or spray them with the weed killer stuff. And maybe as I've been speaking, the Holy Spirit has been putting his finger on specific sins in your life. And maybe it's just borderline areas, and maybe it's something the Holy Spirit is saying specifically to you, stop doing this. Don't do that. And I urge you, don't quench the Spirit. Put sin to death specifically. Fifth, fortify yourself daily with the knowledge of God's love for you in Christ. Remember, last time we were looking at this, we looked at verses 1 and 2, and there is that tremendous description 
of the love of God for us in Christ, who gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So fortify yourself daily with the knowledge of Christ's love. And this, this undergirds and supports everything else. The older writers used to speak of evangelical obedience. What did that mean? They were speaking as opposed to mere moralistic obedience or legalistic obedience. Evangelical obedience is obedience flowing from a sense of the gospel and Christ's great love for us so that we're obeying because our trust is in Jesus Christ and we know he loves us. Sexual sin often brings a great degree of shame, and sometimes Christians feel like it's an unforgivable sin, but it's not. And God calls us to abide in the love of Jesus Christ. You see, we really do live out what we really love and value and desire in our hearts. And the gospel says, Jesus has loved us. He has made you his dearly loved child. And if that is true, God has actually given you himself. And he has brought you into this incredible relationship to himself. So what more could you want? Never stop finding your ultimate joy in Jesus Christ. And finally, focus on loving others instead of loving yourself. Focus on loving others instead of loving yourself. Because if you're loving yourself, then you're just going to go about using others and objectifying others around you. That's the direction of sexual immorality. We've already seen that sexual sin is basically self-love. And part of the way God cures our hearts is that he teaches us to love others and to die to self. And God calls you to start loving others instead of using them. If you're married, love your husband or love your wife. If you're single or um, have close friends, start loving them. Start loving others in the body of Christ. Don't think about what you can get, but think about how you can give, how you can build up others, how you can serve others, how you can bless others. That is the opposite direction of the world's way. And by God's grace, as Christians seek to be children of light in a dark society, who knows but how God might use you and use me and use us as the church to be a more and more bright and shining light in an increasingly dark society. And who knows, but even like the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, that the face of our society may be changed by a church that is filled with the spirit of holiness. May it be so to God's glory. Father, we ask that you would help us to be more alert and aware of how we are squeezed into the image of the world. We pray that you would help us to humble ourselves before you and realize our need for your daily strength, that we would take up the armor of God and that we would seek to live out what you have put in us through Christ, the great gift of your spirit, the great gift of salvation. Thank you for these spiritual realities and for the fellowship we have with you. Help us to long for more of that and to go deeper with you and to so be changed. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.